Hello, Great Minds! It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History. But first, I have a small question for you. If you were offered a billion dollars tomorrow, but you could never drink another sip of alcohol again, would you do it? Before you answer, sit back and have a listen to this episode of DGMH, Drinks with Great Minds in History. It probably doesn't surprise you, but when answering that question, I said, fuck no. What's the point in having all that money if you can't do one of your favorite things? It's amazing how fast others who answered this question dumped their booze down the drain for some quick cash. Not me. Honestly, I have come to the simple Cinderella-esque conclusion that it's more of a you-don't-know-what-you-got-till-it's-gone scenario. Most of us will never see a billion dollars, saving watching it fly into space in the shape of a giant phallus. Nor will I likely be giving up casual drinking anytime soon. There was a time when most Americans knew exactly what this felt like. The no drinking, that is, not the dick-shaped spaceship thing, but still, that is a really hard reality to take in. As we close Season 2, I figured we'd truly cover a mix, follow the motto of the show, make our season finale a fantastic fucking cocktail of history and drinks, as we cover the fall of Prohibition in the United States of America. And in honor of Prohibition, I will be drinking a real curveball tonight for this episode. N.A., that is non-alcoholic beer. Specifically the one N.A. Heineken that I had left in the fridge. Now today's topic is primarily the end of Prohibition. That oh-so-great day to be celebrated and remembered forevermore. That being said, the 18th Amendment is every bit as important here. Tied to today's drink, one of the most important parts of this story is figuring out what level of alcohol actually violates the language of the 18th Amendment. Near beers, N.A., or cereal beverages, like the one I'm drinking today, contained and still contain small trace amounts of alcohol that fit in the legally defined parameters of non-alcoholic. But we will dig into that a little more later on. For now, let's jump right into the Prohibition era. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. Benjamin Franklin once likely never said, but is often said to have said, and who really cares if he actually said it anyways, quote, Beer is proof that God wants us to be happy. That's brilliant, and so fucking true. At least until the next morning. Now I love Quakers, I really do, but Franklin is the only smart one that I am going to mention today. In fact, Quakers, ever the trailblazers, were some of the first to limit the production and sale of alcohol in what would become the United States, specifically addressing issues regarding local trade with American Indian populations. Other non-Quaker founders that addressed the issue, like Benjamin Rush, who was one of the leading physicians in the early Republic, actually wrote about the harmful nature of excessive drinking and alcohol consumption, which is totally true. Rush called for moderation, which is great, and aimed to raise awareness of the dangers that came with consuming too much alcohol, but never really called for outright prohibition. But Franklin was kind of right, wasn't he? Beer does make one quite happy. So that raises the question, who was upset about it? One of the most interesting pieces of the story that I got to learn about in researching state and national prohibition movements was actually where the foolish folly began, in Maine. And I wish I had time to explore it more, but in all honesty, there isn't that much to say. In 1851, it seems that Maine was a pioneer in prohibition efforts before prohibition was really even a thing. Under the direction of Portland, Maine Mayor Neil Dow, 
The, quote, Maine law was repealed just five years after its passing, but not before 12 states joined Maine in outright prohibiting the sale and consumption of alcohol. These 12 states, mainly in the Deep South, became known as dry states, their intoxicating rivals, the wet states. The Maine law's failure was largely the result of the Portland Rum Riots, when the city's large Irish population protested the law and crowds turned violent. Dow resorted to calling in armed militias, and he faced heavy criticism for his aggressive response that resulted in the death of one Irish immigrant and several others being wounded when militias fired on the crowd. Dow's tenure as mayor ended after that, but his story didn't get any less interesting. During the American Civil War, Dow, an avid and very vocal abolitionist, joined up with Union forces after Fort Sumter. He served under General Butler in New Orleans and was later wounded and captured by Confederates at Port Hudson. He was actually freed in a prisoner exchange for General William Henry Lee, a son of Robert E. Lee himself. After the war, he continued to serve in politics, eventually putting his name in the running for President of the United States in the election of 1880. He didn't win. The Prohibition Party never won. Dow died in 1897, having, as one historian noted, led the cause of Prohibition, quote, more than any other man in the century. So yeah, that's Maine's story, but what drove the nation in a similar direction? Well, the usual suspects for sure. Financial and job security, domestic abuse issues, and xenophobia. Wait, what? Yes, xenophobia. This was a key factor in the rising temperance movement, which just so happened to parallel various waves of European immigration to the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries. Many temperance advocates' fears were actually quite visible realities. Not about the immigration piece, but by 1900 there were approximately 300,000 saloons in the United States. That's about one bar for every 300 citizens at the time. Far less than today's number. But there has to be a reason why so many people are seeking places to drink, right? Of course, life was fucking hard. The local watering hole was a place for the industrial working class immigrants to unwind, to release and drown their frustrations and sorrows, to be with those who shared in their culture, tradition, and language. Honestly, America in this period was essentially a polyglot nation, home to more diverse and varying language and culture groups than any other time in the nation's history. One journalist actually notes that forcing temperance and prohibition on the growing and increasingly diverse immigrant population was a new form of, quote, Americanization. That is, forcing them to conform to more traditional American, I should add Protestant, notions of good behavior. Unsurprisingly, prohibition was also a very politicized issue, but my god, I had no idea it was this bad. Anyone who is a teacher, like me, knows that we will do just about anything possible to categorize and simplify content to reach all of our students in an approachable way. Acronyms for westward expansion or the causes of the First World War? Great! Joking about Henry Clay or William Jennings Bryan basically doing nothing with their careers but making failed attempts at the presidency? How fun! But 27 amendments, well that just gets tricky, even for me. Typically, as teachers, we try to clump them into related categories, the obvious clump being 1 through 10. That is the Bill of Fucking Rights. If you're in the US and you didn't know that, shame. Fucking shame. 11 is known as the Who the Fuck Really Cares Amendment, and 12 is the one that happened after Jefferson and Burr's mess. Then 13 through 15 are the ones that came during Reconstruction, the quote, Reconstruction Amendments. Of course, they were the ones that created, or at least laid the groundwork for a more equal America after the Civil War. Then we approach today's subject, Prohibition, which is lumped into the quote, Progressive Amendments. And I had no idea how interconnected these amendments really were. 
Starting simple, the 16th Amendment created a federal income tax, which would serve as a new, more secure and steady stream of revenue for the federal government. And this was key, as Congress and President Wilson, who never really actually directly supported the 18th Amendment, entertained the possibility of nationwide prohibition. Quite simply, the excise tax on booze was a major revenue stream for the federal government, and removing it would present a major challenge to this country. And after 16 comes 17. The 17th Amendment changed the electoral system from the days of the founders and is truly something that we take for granted as Americans today. Answering the demands of the populist movement of the late 19th century that predated the progressives, this amendment made senators directly elected by the people. As opposed to the previous system where senators were elected really just chosen by state legislatures. This change was first noticeable in the Senate elections of 1914 and had reached every sitting senator by the elections of 1918. But what does this have to do with prohibition? Well, this allowed voters for the first time to truly and really honestly elect people that they supported. In this case, dry states elected dry congressmen for the first time, and a truly dry congress emerged in 1916. Something that just didn't seem to happen in the majority of states before the 17th Amendment. I would have to dig more, but I really didn't care to. Yet I would not think it a big leap to assume that there was some sort of correlation between the direct election of senators and the increasingly dry presence in the United States Congress. And as we've said this season, it's my show, and I can say it if I fucking want to. As for the final two progressive amendments, 18 and 19 that is, well, they went hand in hand, as women's suffrage groups, who were often also part of state temperance movements, began supporting national prohibition. And according to some historians, this was done in part to garner support for the 19th Amendment, that is, women's suffrage from prohibitionist males. And it worked. On a side note, women's suffrage took way too fucking long to achieve. Boo, history men. Boo. So in the end, the progressive amendments were connected by far more than just time period. Different social groups, women, even African-American interest groups, rallied behind temperance and prohibition in hopes that it would benefit their own communities. In a way, prohibition and women's suffrage were furthered and hastened by a sort of you-scratch-my-back, I'll-scratch-yours situation. And, you know, since we brought it up, as for the rest of the amendments to the Constitution, which have next to nothing to do with this episode, well, no teacher has nearly enough time to really dive too deep into these ones in the madness that ensues as state assessments approach at the end of the school year, so no cool names or acronyms for these ones. So yeah, politics. An unending shit show of deal-making, scheming, and mutually beneficial allegiances. allegiances. Sadly, even the KKK was deeply immersed in the Prohibition movement. In fact, supporting Prohibition provided the Klan with a state-sanctioned way to promote their anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic, and by extension anti-Black agenda. One journalist notes, quote, The war on alcohol united progressives and Protestants, federal agents, and Klansmen. In fact, one of America's most famous lawyers of the day, Clarence Darrow, remarked in 1924 in the heart of Prohibition America, quote, I would not say every anti-saloon leaguer is a Ku Kluxer, but every Ku Kluxer is an anti-saloon leaguer. And this brings up the last piece of the Prohibition or anti-saloon puzzle. As my research kept bringing me to a few key voices in the anti-saloon league, temperance, and Prohibition movements, Carrie Nation, Wayne Wheeler, and his pussy foot. I won't lie, I'm not an American historian. Anyone who listens to the show knows this. Stewart's, Bourbons, Braganza's, Beavers, that's more my thing. Prohibition has never really held my interest until now, and honestly, it is quite fascinating. But my point is that I don't know a lot about it. 
In fact, the other day in my classroom, as I was getting ready to teach students about the progressive amendments, they were asking me about a woman that ran around slashing liquor bottles with a hatchet and scaring the hell out of saloon owners. I had heard the story, but I realized quite quickly that I didn't know jack shit about what they were discussing. Of course, half of you were like, how the fuck does Mr. DGMH not know who Carrie Nation is? Well, back the fuck off, I didn't. Carrie Nation is a bit of a curveball for me. Unrelenting in her endeavor to end the American saloon, she would often travel to saloons singing hymns and swinging hatchets, hoping to pressure the populace into abandoning and shutting down the local saloon. It worked, sometimes, but other times, shit just got violent. Nation did not hesitate for one single second to destroy others' property, smashing liquor bottles with bricks, destroying images that she deemed, quote, pornographic, and in December 1900, she even vandalized a luxury hotel in Kansas for serving alcohol. After serving a two-year stint in jail for her actions, she criticized the governor of Kansas for arresting her but not supporting or enforcing existing prohibition laws. Interesting side note, Kansas was the first state to impose such laws on their populace legitimately through their state constitution, and held on to prohibition for the longest amount of time, not loosening their laws until 1948. But let's get back to Scary Carrie, who went as far as to vandalize the saloon that was most frequently visited by members of the Kansas State Senate. One of her nicknames was, quote, Hatchet Granny, and it's easy to understand why. She charged into saloons and destroyed people's personal property with the blunt end, or probably often the sharp end, of a hatchet. Her so-called hatchetations, and I think I'm saying that right, were so infamous that she became a national enemy of saloons everywhere, and later speakeasies who often adorned their establishments with cast-iron hatchets that read, All nations welcome, but carry. Long after her death in 1911. She did not live to see national prohibition achieved. More to say about her for sure, but that's enough for now. Another name, however, that kept coming up was Wayne Wheeler. He's less interesting, but probably a little more significant. As a longtime leader of the Anti-Saloon League, or ASL, and often working with Women's Christian Temperance Union, he drove the movement towards ratification of nationwide prohibition. During his tenure as leader of the ASL, the Prohibition Party fell from popularity and he focused on getting officials elected that were part of the two major parties in the United States, that is, Democrat and Republican, in case anyone was thinking it was Bull Moose. And he was quite successful at this, seeing several dry state and federal legislators elected. The influence of this was visible when Congress overrode President William Howard Taft's veto of the Webb-Keenan Act that aimed to give states a greater voice in the regulation of interstate transport of alcohol. Which, you know, is kind of a right belonging exclusively to the federal government per the U.S. Constitution's Commerce Clause. But I guess that didn't really fit the dry agenda. Continuing on, it was Wheeler who encouraged the ASL to support women's suffrage in the first place, in hopes that they would give greater support to prohibition in return. And it clearly worked out for both parties. Wheeler was a key voice in drafting the soon-to-be-discussed Volstead Act, and he continued to influence the enforcement of the 18th Amendment long after its ratification. Wheeler's fall came really from just one gross miscalculation. He believed that with Prohibition, Americans' desire for alcohol would naturally just fade away. But fade, it did not. If anything, it got worse. As Prohibition became harder to enforce and Wheeler began supporting ludicrous ideas like adding fatal poisons to alcohol batches to make them undrinkable, he sort of fell from power and popularity. Although lesser known today amongst Prohibitionists, his, quote, pressure politics are considered to be essential to the movement's success by most historians of the Prohibition era. Plus, he led me to Pussyfoot. Keeping this one even shorter, the next name that I just couldn't ignore was William E. Johnson, a law enforcement officer from New York. 
Johnson was famous for going undercover in saloons to collect information against business owners. Eventually, Johnson joined up with the ASL, helping to develop most of their pressure politics tactics that they used to continually further their stupid-ass agenda. I'm sorry, I mean the Prohibition movement. Famous for his strict and unyielding anti-saloon beliefs, Johnson was appointed to work with the U.S. Marshals in Oklahoma to help suppress the illegal sale of alcohol. He was famous for leading nighttime raids on saloons that were so devastating to business that saloon owners actually raised thousands of dollars as a reward for his death. Johnson's stealthy anti-saloon tactics earned him the nickname Pussyfoot for his quote cat-like sneakiness. Of the three radical prohibitionists discussed in this episode, Old Pussyfoot was the only one to see both the rise and fall of Prohibition, dying in 1945. But did Prohibition actually curb the consumption of intoxicating beverages? Well, kind of. The 18th Amendment was ratified in January 1919, but it actually did very little to enforce the core idea, that is, cutting out drinking. Looking at the amendment itself, it states, quote, After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating liquors within, the importation thereof into, or the exportation thereof from the United States, and all territory subject to jurisdiction thereof, for beverage purposes, is hereby prohibited. Now this didn't even, although this opened the door for medicinal alcohol to continue to be produced, this didn't even explain what counted as an intoxicating liquor. But on October 28, 1919, Congress passed the Volstead Act, or technically the National Prohibition Act, which gave the amendment some teeth. Specifically, it defined what exactly a, quote, intoxicating beverage was, setting the limit at anything above 0.5%, which this humble podcaster would not find, quote, intoxicating at all. In a funny twist, most brewers and distillers flocked to get licenses to produce legal forms of alcohol for medicinal purposes, while other companies like Yingling switched to making near beer or even ice cream. One historian notes, stores actually sold grape concentrate with warning labels that listed the steps that should be avoided to prevent the juice from fermenting into wine, in a way that sort of, you know, kind of taught home brewers how to circumvent prohibition in their own homes. In the end, however, liver failure dropped, casual drinking dropped, and most Americans outside of cities just obeyed the law. But cities were a slightly, I mean epically, different story. Of course, organized crime emerged to take up the mantle of supplying cities with exuberant amounts of alcohol, especially in cities like New York that just bucked prohibition outright. In fact, most city dwellers saw prohibition as rural religious conservatives forcing their political and personal beliefs on a much more diverse and liberal-minded urban population. So how did it come to an end? Well, that's simple. And it's the answer as to why we're covering this topic as we close out Season 2. It was on December 5th, 1933, that the Franklin Roosevelt administration finally and officially oversaw the repeal of Prohibition, with the ratification of the 21st Amendment. Unable to shake their connections with the Ku Klux Klan, accusations of shady election tactics, and overall diminishing popular support for Prohibition in the 20s and 30s, the Anti-Saloon League lost a great deal of its power, and organized crime had pretty much mastered the illegal importation of alcohol by the late 1920s. Speakeasies, flappers, and the Roaring Twenties are a saga and a show in itself, as is the amazing story of organized crime. However, I do not have the time nor the knowledge base to explain it all. But you know who does? Our old show guest and drinking buddy, Locke. If you are looking for even more on mobsters, speakeasies, and the Prohibition era, then please go check out the Say Hello to the Bad Guy podcast. I'll put the link in the show notes so you can get there quickly. 
It's a fantastic and fun show that covers gangsters, mobsters, and everything in between. I've actually guested on the show several times, and I always make sure to listen. So go check it out for yourself. But how did Prohibition come to an end? Well, as the nation, well really the world, fell into a great economic de- known to history as the Great Depression, the lack of federal revenue just didn't make sense anymore. People needed jobs, and FDR's government needed taxes to make and pay for those jobs. Plus, congressmen, senators, and even presidential administrations from Harding to Hoover had ensured personal access to a steady stream of alcohol throughout Prohibition's course. The hypocrisy of it all was ludicrous from the beginning. The roots of the 21st Amendment can actually be seen in President Hoover's administration, who really gets, you know, way too little credit for his efforts in the earliest days of the Depression. But it was in fact FDR's administration that would oversee the end of Prohibition once and for all. In March 1933, Congress passed the Cullen Harris Act, which was signed into law the following day by President Roosevelt. And I have to say that the speed at which this law was ratified really says something about how sick of Prohibition everyone was. The law once again redefined the ABV, or alcohol by volume, of a quote intoxicating liquor, raising it to 4% ABV, or 3.2 alcohol by weight. Upon signing the act into law, Roosevelt famously remarked, I think this would be a good time for a beer. And I have to say, that sounds about right. In honor of the moment when Yingling Beer sent a truckload of freshly brewed beer to the White House at the end of Prohibition and in thanks to FDR, I am going to wrap up this episode with a delicious ice-cold Yingling traditional lager that of course was brewed in America's oldest brewery located in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Well, that's it. If you enjoyed this episode, this season, this beautiful shit show of a bonus season, then please help us out and leave the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This may be the final episode of season two, but that doesn't mean that the history or the drinking stops. And I'll be honest with you, the drinking almost never stops. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at DGMH History, and please join the DGMH Facebook group at Drinks with Great Minds and History Podcast to embrace our growing cohort of history lovers. Mistress Mondays, Teach Me Tuesdays, and all other craziness will continue through our little break. And if you are looking for even more DGMH, then consider visiting the DGMH Patreon page. Just follow the link in the show notes, and you can get access to even more great content with your favorite show guests, including bonus shots and Twist of Psych episodes, and the occasional document dive and pre-game Q&A chats. So let's wrap this up with our final return to the scale of greatness for Season 2. Prohibition, fuck you. You suck. Were you, quote, progressive? I guess, but at what cost? You ask me, Prohibition did little more than infringe on the rights and freedoms of all Americans. And I'll be damned before I say it was ever a good thing. Tax revenue dropped, crime rose, and drinking didn't really disappear at all. I will say this. Prohibition gave Americans speakeasies, flappers, and all sorts of fun historical figures like Al Capone or Old Pussyfoot himself. So I guess you weren't all bad, and neither is this Yingling. Not gonna rate it, already have nor will I be rating the N.A. beer that I drank earlier. Because, you know, that's just empty fucking carbs, and now that makes me really sad. So what to say as we wrap up this episode? National Beer Day is celebrated on April 7th each year to commemorate the day the 1933 Cullen Harris Act went into full effect. But a law isn't enough to undo a constitutional amendment. No, the only thing that can void an existing amendment's constitutional power is another constitutional amendment. Of course, that is a little bit of an oversimplification of the process, but the 21st Amendment did exactly that, saying, quote, the 18th Article of Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. And to that I say, ha fucking za.
The amendment was finally ratified by Congress and state ratifying conventions, by the way, the only amendment to be ratified in this way, and the 21st Amendment was added to the U.S. Constitution on December 5, 1933, the day of the original airing of this episode. If you were hoping for more on Prohibition, the Roaring Twenties, and such, then let me remind you that this isn't a damned Ken Burns documentary. One short episode, that's all you get. So listeners, today we raise a glass to you, and Prohibition's end. Without you, this show would be nothing. Without the 21st Amendment, this show would be more than a crime, more than a felony, it would be a constitutional violation. And as fun as that may have been in the Roaring Twenties, I sure am glad that I can enjoy an ice-cold yingling beer anytime I want. Thanks for listening. See you next season. Cheers.